0: Listen, if you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 27. Uh, as you turn there, I'm going to remind you of a phrase you may have heard about before, but uh, we're going to be in Matthew 27. The title of today's message, of course, is Conflicted, so if you want to share this with somebody, you can find that on our website or on YouTube or Facebook or podcast and all those other things, um, or you can just ask me for my notes and get a hard copy paper form. That works too. Um, but the title of today's sermon is Conflicted. We're going to find it in Matthew 27. I want to ask you if you've heard this statement. I'm sure that you have. Have you ever heard the statement between a rock and a hard place? And everybody said, of course. Okay. If you've heard that, you know what that means, and perhaps you found yourself in that situation before too. Perhaps you have found yourself conflicted. Uh, the term conflicted simply means having or showing confused and mutually inconsistent feelings. And what I'm talking about here is uh, you may think you know what is right to do, or you may think you know what is wrong to do, and then you find yourself unable to choose or having conflicting emotions about which to choose. Pilate in the text today, as well as others, are going to find themselves in a place of conflicting internal emotions. I think conflicting internal emotions are really based on our consciences. God has given all of us a conscience. He tells us in Romans even that everybody, whether saved or unsaved, all know who God is. In fact, the conscience is this internal feeling or voice as a guide to what is right or what is wrong Romans 2.15 says this they show the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them and so perhaps that's you there's going to be four characters that we're going to see in this text one of them should fit you but as we look through this text in Matthew 27, we're going to see conflicting emotions, people's consciences either excusing or accusing them. I want you to see over all of this, if you, if you tune out right now, I want you to see over all of this, in the midst of everyone else choosing self, Jesus chooses you. And so before we get into the text, let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we do thank you for allowing us to meet together. We give you honor and glory and praise because we know you are worthy and it is owed you. So God, it is our joy to bring it. Let our hearts be a fragrant offering to you. As Paul said, let us be poured out as a drink offering before you, meaning take all of us, God. We pray that as we come in contact with your holy and righteous word, that it would be exactly as you have proclaimed. It would be sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to our very hearts, piercing past our hearts to our very souls. And we also pray, Lord, that your word would not return to you void as you have promised that it would not, but rather that it would have its due effect on each and every one of us. It is our prayer that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so it's in your name we ask this. Amen. So I'm going to tell you a story and give you a recap. So if you're in chapter 27, keep your finger there and then come on a journey with me. Last week, we talked about this long night, chapter 26. Jesus, after what we talked about, Jesus is betrayed and he's arrested. Judas comes there. He comes in the garden where he knows that Jesus is going to be because Judas has been with him for a long time now. And so Judas brings all of these with him, and they come to him with swords and clubs. And Jesus is like, why? Why are you coming to me like this? Did I, was I not with you all the time? You could have got me any time you wanted to. And they know that Jesus is a man of peace. If you've listened to any of his sermons, you would know that. So they come with swords and clubs, and then Judas comes and kisses him, calling him rabbi teacher leader we talked a little bit about this last week how sinister it is to use a mode of affection and care to betray someone to their death and so Judas comes with these Caiaphas' uh, you know um, minions and they come and they take him and uh, Peter being who Peter is quickly reaches for his sidearm, as many of us may do and he cuts off the ear And Jesus rebukes him and reminds him that this is exactly what must take place. This is exactly what's supposed to happen. And so then all of a sudden we come into our first conflicted issue the disciples. They love Jesus. At least they have said they love Jesus. Many of them, Peter included, said, I love you so much, I'm going to come with you, even if that means to the point of death. And now they're conflicted. They want to stay with Jesus, but at the same time they want to save their own lives. They want to stay with Jesus, but they see the swords and they see the clubs and then fear grips their hearts and they do exactly as Jesus prophesied and they leave him there. So Jesus goes before Caiaphas and the rest of the council. These scribes and these elders are supposed to be the religious elite, right? If anybody is supposed to recognize who Jesus is when he comes as the Messiah, it should have been them. And yet, they're they're gathered around him. Peter follows. He follows as far as the courtyard. So if you think about it as this church is set up, he would follow not into the sanctuary, but into the foyer. And out in the foyer, that close from it, he watches as Jesus is mocked and beaten and questioned. And I don't know if you ever thought about this. This this occurred to me as I was studying through this. I think Judas himself was right there in Inside the house or inside the temple with Caiaphas as they were doing these things and he was watching these things happen to Jesus I mean he paid for the front row seat did he not and so Peter is outside they're seeking false testimony it says in scripture they found none and they wanted to destroy him but they had a conflict because on what grounds could they get their will done so he was questioned he was beaten Jesus confirms that he is the Christ he is mocked and then therefore because he says he was the Christ he is condemned Rest assured, that is the reason Jesus is on trial in today's text in 27. Because he claimed to be the Messiah. And they could not stand it. They could not stomach it. Peter betrays him. And as you can see from here into the foyer, at least I can. You can't unless you turn around. Some of you did. I Gotcha. So if you look out into the foyer, you can see and that's where Peter would be. And from that moment, Peter betrays Jesus. Jesus with one swollen eye, looks out to Peter, who is out there as the rooster crows, only confirming Jesus' claim over him that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah and has the ability to prophesy over us. And Peter breaks down and weeps. And again, Peter was conflicted over whether he should, in fact, own Christ or perhaps be beaten and flogged and murdered himself. And that brings us, of course, to chapter 27 where we have in the beginning of that, it is morning now. Of course, it's morning. We see that the rooster crowed, but then we have our first conflict, and you may be surprised that the first conflicted person here is actually Judas. Again, Judas has this front row seat to this man who has cast out demons, who has healed lepers, who has given sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, saw people brought back from the dead, and he watches people accuse and malign and abuse this person. This Jesus, this Messiah, this Christ, his teacher, his rabbi, who he had just turned over with a kiss. And I believe his heart was absolutely sickened. And so he goes back to return the money, but instead, with remorse, the return he is rejected. So he is conflicted. I shouldn't have done what I have done. I want to try to pay it back by myself. And as we all know, Scripture teaches us very clearly that we cannot pay anything back on our own. And so this early morning why is it early morning there it's because these uh people who are in charge Caiaphas and his buddies his cronies there they want to make sure they get Jesus to Pontius Pilate before anyone else is up so at the moment the rooster crows that is their signal to get him going get him chained up and get him to the pavement where he can be judged by Pontius Pilate they want to have this done before the ceremonies begin remember these are good religious jews the Passover feast is on its way. They wanted him dealt with, but not with their hands. They wanted him dealt with, but they didn't want to miss the Passover. They wanted him dealt with, but they did not want to deal with the people. So they bring him very early in the morning. And again, it says that they brought him bound. I was watching the passion of the Christ to prepare for this, and I, I would like to offer you to do the same. As you watch The Passion of the Christ, they, they do a very good job of being very close with Scripture, at least in the trial section. I didn't watch the whole movie. But they bring Jesus bound in chains, and again, that shows their ignorance. Did Jesus not just pray the night before, Lord, if this be your will, then it will be? They didn't need to bind him. Jesus would have came all by his own accord. He knows what the will of the Father is, and he desires to be obedient to it even Hebrews tells us even to death to the point of the cross and so they bring him bound this shows their ignorance of who Jesus is as they bring him bound it also shows their ingenuity seeking for a conviction I mean why would you have the guy take a shower and a bath and give him fresh clothes before you bring him in before Pontius Pilate right instead you want to have him look like a vagabond make sure he is disheveled and dirty Make sure he is bound and beaten and broken before you bring him in to Pontius so that he can render the verdict that you so desire. And I think if we can take a step a little farther in allegory, I think this is also an illustration of what will happen to the Antichrist in the end of days. That Antichrist will also be brought before the ultimate judge, bound and chained And for that Antichrist, there will be no resurrection, there will be no second chance, there will be no forgiveness. And not only for the Antichrist, but all those who follow after him. So we see Jesus bound and brought before Pilate. This is the first time we see Pilate. He is the governor. Pilate is the prefect of Judea. Meaning that's his area. We can think of that when we think of all the governors we have here in America, right? We have a governor that governs our state. Well, these governors were put in place by Rome, by the emperor, and they were to do the same. So Pilate is the sixth one that Judea has had. I don't know if you know anything about the Middle East. It's not peaceful. It hasn't been for a very, very long time. In fact, for a very, very, very long time, the Jews have been at the center of all of world's events and they continue to be so today. And so Pilate, who's placed over this, the sixth in line, has had six that have come before him to try to rule these unruly people. And he had sole authority to acquit or to condemn to determine the sentence of any prisoner in his jurisdiction. By the way, I don't know how much you know about Pilate, but he was no friend of Jew or Gentile. Even his closest of friends characterize him as cold and calculating. The emperor at the time, his name was Tiberius. Tiberius was over him, and he was not pleased with Pilate for the recent events that went on. You see, we know what we know because we read the Bible, but there's history books that also tell us what happened also. And so what had happened recently is that Pilate had seized money from the temple to build an aqueduct. Rome was famous for this, right? They wanted to pipe in water to the people there. So Pilate took the money from the temple to build this aqueduct, which is what caused the revolt and the insurrection, I believe, that was the reason that Barabbas was there in the first place. Now I'm reading into the text a little bit, so you have to separate John from Scripture. I trust that you can do that. So he seizes this money, he builds this aqueduct, this leads to this in- insurrection, which he crushes ruthlessly. But Tiberius does not like unrest among the people of his, what do you call it, his empire. <laughs> yeah, all that. And so now you understand why I brought in between a rock and a hard place, because now Pilate is going to be conflicted. Pilate understands that there were six before him, there may be six after him. If you know anything about Rome, or politics for that matter, you know, you can rest assured there is somebody somewhere in Rome who is gunning for this seat, the seat of a governor. You know that politics is tenuous and it is all about who you know and who is in your good graces, or perhaps who you can pay off, who you can appease. And Pilate is no different. Yeah, it might have been thousands of years ago, but Pilate is the governor of this crazy area, and he knows that one more slip up, and Tiberius will have him executed, or at very least, removed, which would be an immense dishonor to him, his family, and anyone who knows him. And so now he's between this rock and this hard place. How does he up-honor truth and justice, but yet still quelch a revolt? And so the accusations begin. These are the accusations they have of Jesus. He's been misleading our nation, forbidding tribute to Caesar, and then probably the worst of all, claiming to be king, which would be considered treason in Rome. Because there is one king, and that is Caesar. There is one king over all, even a God king, and in Rome, that was Caesar. And so they wanted the death penalty. They brought him there because they said, it is not lawful for us to put him to death. And so they use Pilate to do their bidding. Caiaphas and the religious elite, they come in to use Pilate. And they, if they need to, they can always say, Rome is the one who killed the Christ. And so Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Now I would love to tell you all the things Jesus said, but Jesus doesn't say very much. In fact, that fulfills prophecy in Isaiah where it says he was as silent as the sheep was before the shearers, so Jesus was silent before his accusers. However, Jesus does not deny his kingship. He says, you have said it so. Now, if you look in the other Gospels, you can get a fuller picture of this, and I would encourage you to go home and do that. But he also tells them that he was born for such a time as this. He tells him that his kingdom is not of this world, and if it was, then he would have people banging down his door to free him. But he is a higher king, a higher power. In fact, later he will tell Pontius he has no authority to kill him except for that authority which has been given to him. So if you go back to then Pilate, in all three Gospels, it is the Gentiles who testify who Christ is, that he is the king. First, the Magi. And now Pilate. And this is what will be written over him as he hangs on the cross. And the irony is, is that he who is to be judge over all is here judged. And he who is granted the authority by this very one, the one who has granted it now submits to it. And so Pilate is left in utter disbelief, as you might be. Think of the last trial that you might have seen. Think about if the defense made no defense. I mean, none whatsoever. This is what Jesus does. He stands silently, and in the tense there, as it says that they were bringing accusations, it's this uh, continuous accusation, accusation after accusation, and Jesus just stands. Pilate is in utter disbelief in the situation. This poor man in rags, beaten and bloodied, celebrated yesterday, and reviled today. All of these accusations, not one single defense. I believe Jesus didn't defend himself because, one, this was his Father's will. Two, the truth was plain to everybody. And three, he need not. I believe that even as he stood there, there was something regal about him that was undeniable to Pontius Pilate. In Rome, it was despicable to sentence an undefended man. And Pilate could see right through the Jewish leaders, he could see that this man was absolutely innocent. In fact, it is very probable, historians say, that there were spies that would go throughout the the town of uh, Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee, that he would have already known who Jesus was before he came there, just never had the pleasure of meeting the man face to face. And so Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man. And the crowd begins to get unrest again. As they accuse Jesus, they hear, Pilate hears that he is not a Judean, he is a Galilean, which means, hey, this isn't my problem. This is not the governor of Michigan's problem. This is the governor of Illinois' problem. Take him to Illinois. Let that governor deal with him. And so this is exactly what he does. He sends him to Herod. You remember Herod. This is the same Herod who kills John the Baptist. Matthew doesn't record this encounter. This is in some of the other Gospels, but this is the one who kills John the Baptist. Herod wanted to see Jesus for a long time now, didn't he? Herod wanted to see Jesus not because he actually wanted to follow Jesus, but he wanted to put his own conflicted internal argument to rest. Remember, uh, he was conflicted because he was already living in sin with his brother's wife. He was committing adultery with her. And John the Baptist called him on it. And he had John the Baptist beheaded, and then he had this fear that Jesus was really John the Baptist reincarnated. He was conflicted because of what he was doing with his wife, and he wanted to see Jesus for himself and see exactly what this man was all about. He asked for signs. He questioned him. He mocked him. The text says in Luke that he dressed him up in splendid clothing and then sent him back. And You can turn there if you want, but I just want to read it to you because it stuck out to me. It says, Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. They arrayed him in splendid clothing, and they sent him back to Pilate. They wanted to dress him like a king. You claim to be a king, then we're going to dress you that way. And and here's what it says in verse 12, and this shocked me. Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with one another. And you might think, that's weird. Why enmity with one another? Well, because you have two big dogs in one cage. If that makes sense. And they found friendship over the mockery and disdain for the king of kings and the lord of lords. They said, "Ah, this seems like something we can laugh about together. This seems like something we can agree upon. This seems stupid that these people would do this, doesn't it? At least we're on the same page with that. The other interesting thing is that Herod found him innocent as well. Herod, this very one who kills John the Baptist, finds Jesus innocent and sends him back. And so now Pilate is on the stage again. Again, Pilate is conflicted internally because his wife has now come to him and said, I have suffered much because of this man in a dream. Have nothing to do with this man. I know that he is righteous. And so as they bring Jesus back into his court before him, all dressed up now, Pilate remembers what his wife has told him. He knows Absolutely, that this man is innocent. And so what he says is, I'm going to just have him flogged and then I'm going to release him. And again, you can watch The Passion of the Christ if you so choose to, but I will warn you that there is some very gruesome and grim footage in there of what a flogging in Rome looks like. And as they're doing that, they twist together a crown of thorns and put it over his brow and they put a uh, purple robe over him and they mock him and they afflict him and they spit at him and they jeer him hail king of the jews they say well Pilate is hopeful he knows that every passover feast there's a tradition of a prisoner being released to the people and so he brings jesus back out broken and beaten and bloodied and he says before him behold him And he's hoping that the shame that Jesus is feeling and the the ugliness of the situation will be enough. And he asks the people, hey, you know that it is time for me to release a prisoner. Who would you have me release? And then there's a new character on the scene, Barabbas. Remember what I said before, there was an insurrection. Rome counts Barabbas as a criminal, but I believe Jerusalem counts Barabbas as a hero a Robin Hood type, if you will. Remember, he took money from the temple to build this aqueduct and his insurrection raised up. And, and I think, I imagine that Barabbas was one of those who actually fought against Rome and he was convicted of murder because he probably murdered a few people who were Roman citizens. And for that, that is a capital offense in Rome. And so both he and the others, these crosses were prepared. And so Barabbas who is preparing to go to Golgotha himself and carry his own cross and be crucified, walks out on the stage. Because the crowd cries, not this man, but Barabbas. This name Barabbas actually means son of the father. Interesting, isn't it? The other part of his name in Hebrew is this idea of being the son of a rabbi. Interesting, isn't it? And so you have Barabbas on one side and Jesus on the other and you hear the crowd shouting, Crucify Jesus, give us Barabbas. And so I think the last person in this text who had conflict was probably, and maybe I'm giving him too much credit, was probably Barabbas. We have to remember he's a Jew. We have to remember that he probably heard about Jesus. Even if he was in prison, he probably heard about Jesus. And maybe while he was in prison, he didn't see Jesus. Jesus. But I don't understand how any human being can walk past a broken, beaten, bloodied, innocent man who is about to take the punishment you know you deserve. And yet if we're honest, the only thing he heard was not Barabbas, but was freedom. Now, I know we have rules against cruel and unusual punishment here in America, and I think that's good, but I can tell you straight up, Roman prisons were not like American jail. And so Barabbas is conflicted, but he chooses freedom, and who can blame him? Barabbas doesn't really have a choice. And so all of these people, most of these people, specifically Pilate, is between a rock and a hard place. How can they choose between these two things? There's conflicting emotions going on between them. Well, I don't know if it's really attributed to him or not, but I'm sure you've heard this quote attributed to Edmund Burke. It says, The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Which, thanks for hanging into the introduction. Here's the text for this morning. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They said, Let him be crucified. And Pilate says, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning. So he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. I want to talk to you about the four types of people I see in the text today. The first type of people that I see in the text today are those who are contemptuous. And it is my deepest hope and prayer that that is not you this morning. But if it is you, then I want to beg for you to no longer be this. The contemptuous is Caiaphas. If you're contemptuous this morning, then you are Caiaphas. You care nothing for the things of Jesus or of God. In fact, this person is not conflicted at all. There is no remorse. Their heart has been hardened. They choose sin over Christ all the time and care nothing for it. And I want to tell you... Beloved, if that is you this morning, and I pray that it is none who are in this room, your disdain will lead to destruction. And I would be unloving if I didn't warn you of that. Romans 2, 4-8 through says, Or do you not presume on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to Repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. It says where we have to start with the contemptuous. If you have contempt for God, I beg you to reconsider. To understand that God's rules, his law, which is written on your heart, is not to subjugate you, but rather to free you. That his will is best for you and he loves you. And he desires even for you today to turn to him. The second type of people in this text is those who are careless. This would be Herod. Maybe this is you. You have curiosity about Jesus, but really nothing more. You are conflicted, but only lightly. And only slightly. And I want to plead with you to not tarry or harden your hearts any further. You see, the scriptures tell us that our conscience has been given us by God and that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and that when we harden our hearts to that, it says that we sear it. I don't know how you like your steak. I like mine, medium rare. I do not like my steak like a charcoal briquette. You laugh, but I'm serious. When you think about searing your conscience, think about that. You can have one conscience that is tender and that is ready for God to deal with, and you can have another one that's as hard as charcoal, or as scripture would put it, rock. Your unbelief, however, is met with patience, at least for a time. And I think this goes up, by the way, or down. Hebrews 3.4 is all about this. Please go home and read it over if this is you. Today is the day for your salvation, it says. Do not continue to harden your hearts to the things of God. Here's an excerpt from chapter 3 of Hebrews. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. You see, if you are careless, you continue to go down this path, you are in danger of coming to a place of no return. Ezekiel thirty six twenty six ought to be your cry, and I will give you a new heart, he says, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart from some of stone and put a, a, a flesh in your heart. The third one is Pilate, the cowardly. I think, unfortunately, brothers and sisters, this is the camp that most of us are in. We are cowardly. Pilate, he looks truth, the personification of truth, full in the face, and yet washes his hands of it publicly. If this is you, then you are conflicted in your desire for acceptance or fear of man rather than acceptance and fear of God. And I want to encourage you, if this is you, you have been saved for action, not ease. In the text, we see Pilate say this. When he saw that he was gaining nothing, that's when he washed his hands. When he saw that he was gaining nothing and instead a riot was forming, he washes his hands publicly. How many of us are in that same camp? We came to Christ and we wanted salvation from sin, or we wanted not to go to hell, or we wanted not to be judged, or we wanted to be free from our addictions, or we wanted to be, uh, have less guilt, or we wanted for our families to be mended. We wanted all these other things. And then my question would be for you, those are fine and those are good things, but did you want the most important thing when you came to Christ? Did you want Jesus? Did you want Jesus? Because without Jesus, you don't get any of these other things. And we can want Jesus as our Savior, but not as our Lord. And so then we are left to be cowardly. In a nation that is falling apart around us, in a society that is passing laws and bills and TikToks and Facebooks and YouTubes and whatevers. 2 Timothy 1, 7-8 says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Revelation 21 8. I hope this resonates with you this morning like it did with me. Revelation 21 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. How many of you wouldn't have put cowardly in that same camp? but Jesus does. Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, Peter, all of them talk about continuing to do good in good works for the zeal of the Lord in the face of fear for those who are with us and those who are against us. For such we were created, to such we are called, and by such we prove that we are his. And so your prayer, if this is you, ought to be that your inner conflict be transformed to inner conviction. And beg your God that your conflicted inaction be transformed into confident action. So that brings us to the very last of these four that I see in the text today. And that's the condemned. Perhaps none of these are you. Perhaps out of talking about all these things, your conscience is one that is conflicted in another manner. Perhaps you are here today or you are watching this online and perhaps you are thinking to yourself this. My conflict, Pastor, is not dealing with Jesus. My conflict is, I have trouble believing Jesus will actually accept me if I come. Perhaps, perhaps your conflict is one of thinking of yourself as so utterly unworthy and debased that you dare not even gaze at the Savior, let alone reach for him. And so you hang your head in shame of knowing that it is on your cross that Jesus died. That you are the one who is guilty and that you are the one that deserves the punishment of God. You're conflicted by the weight of your shame. And so you ask the question that Pilate asked: what shall we do with this Jesus called Christ? My answer to you would be Run to him cling to him, plead to him, that he might wash not your hands, but wash all of you and make you innocent by his blood. Be not conflicted, rather confess, for he himself has said, for this purpose I was born, for this purpose I have come into the world, that he might die for sinners such as us, and by doing so, redeem us as his people unto himself. For Romans, the promise for us is this. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, my friends, be not conflicted this morning in yourself, if you can come, but rather come and let his grace and his mercy cover you. Let's pray. God, my Father in heaven, I do pray for all of us who have battled with conflicts in our own heart. From time to time, we are conflicted over what is right and what is wrong. You have told us Paul battled with the same thing. He knows what is right, and yet he is unable or unwilling to carry it out. There is sin that battles with him in his flesh. And God, I pray that your will would be done in each and every one of us, that you would give us the strength that is necessary. You have told us that you are the vine and we are the branches. Help us to bear much fruit in you. Keep us close attached by you. Remove from us the confliction that we have in ourselves as we walk through this world. God, I pray that for those who are contemptuous, their hearts would be broken. I pray for those who are careless, their pains of your Holy Spirit might be deepened to the point of coming to you. For the cowardly God, I pray that you would give us a passion and a zeal that is unmatched by the fears of this world. And for those who are battling with condemnation, Lord, I pray that they would come to you, come before you with bended knees and open hands, receiving the salvation that you have purchased with your blood. It's in your name we pray these things and for your glory. Amen. Let's stand.